See, I love the songs of Christmas, and that's one of my favorites, I Heard the Bells. It's such an honest song that, that speaks to the evidence all around us that hate is winning, <laughs> that hate is strong, that there is no peace. And that phrase, like, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. That, that God is somehow in charge of all of this and will one day set all things to rights. That is our hope, uh, no matter what season we're in. So I've known some of you for a number of years. I've known some of you uh, for a number more years for a very long time. Uh, and some of you have known us long enough to remember when Kara and I spent a, a difficult season of our lives walking through a season of infertility. Uh, I remember sitting in sermons when we were newlyweds and, and the pastor would talk about the pain of infertility. And I was like, oh man, that would be, that would be really hard. I'm glad it's never going to be us. <laughs> After about five years of marriage, we decided it was time to get pregnant. And that's how it works, right? You decide, and then it just happens. Well, it didn't happen. And then we walked through several really hard years of deep, deep longing and deep, deep disappointment of not being able to get pregnant and losing a number of pregnancies. Both of us struggled. It was hard for both of us, but I think particularly for my wife, for Kara, there was this profound and deep longing that caused her to have a profound and deep hurt during that season. And it didn't make sense. You know, God seemed like he was silent through all of it. We grieved, we prayed. I remember crying out to God at night, wondering if my prayers even made it past the ceiling of this tiny little bedroom in this tiny little house in Northeast Minneapolis. God felt so silent. It didn't make sense. We, I, I had recently recommitted my life to Christ. I, I had gotten baptized. I was doing everything right. I walked, I worked at a church. And yet God seemed to remain silent. I shared before that one of the, the hardest moments was when we actually got pregnant. And we were so excited. God had finally answered our prayer. It was, it was a miracle. And thank God. And then we lost that pregnancy. We thought our prayers had finally been answered, but then it was over. And then it got even worse. We received a call from my sister who was crying. And through her tears, she told us that they too were pregnant they hadn't wanted to tell us because they knew about the difficult season we had had getting pregnant, but now they had to tell us. Now it was going to come out. And unbelievably, the due date for their birth was the exact same date to the day that our due date had been. I mean, what are the odds? And that started sort of a whole new level of grieving process for us. I was a firstborn. We were the oldest. We were supposed to have the first grandchild, Right? This wasn't how it was supposed to be. This wasn't the story we wanted to write. It was hard for both of us, but again, it was, it was particularly difficult for my wife. Grief took over and I think began quickly to turn into anger and resentment and bitterness. Kara couldn't even be with my sister. She couldn't be with my family. It was just too hard. My family is very, very close. And suddenly we couldn't be with them as we grieved and as they grieved. They planned for this first grandchild, the grandchild that was supposed to be ours. Baby showers happened and we didn't go. Holidays and birthdays happened and we couldn't be there. It was just too hard. And while my wife grieved differently and perhaps more, I felt like I had lost so much. Yes, I had lost this child, this, this miracle baby. But I had also lost my wife. I had lost connection to my family. I couldn't imagine things would ever go back to the way that they were. In those moments, in that season, there was so little joy. I couldn't even imagine joy because I couldn't see the future. We struggled to find hope in the midst of despair. 
As Dan pointed out last week, there's a, there's a place to write this down in your notes. Without hope, it's difficult to experience joy. It's so difficult to experience joy, to even imagine joy when you don't hold any hope. We're now in a different season. We now have three wonderful, mostly, kids. <laughs> most Wonderful most of the time. But then, when we were in the middle of that season, it seemed like it would never end. It was so hard, and in the midst of it, God was mostly silent. There were no easy answers, no quick fixes, no three easy steps to experiencing joy. In that season, neither of us could even imagine ever being okay again. We couldn't imagine hope. I wonder if I stopped believing that there even could be hope. (laughs) How about you? How about you? What season are you in? I know that some of us are probably in really fun seasons of life. That's awesome. Good for you. I'm so happy for you. And I know that there are some in this space, in this community, in this church, watching online, some of you at home, for whom that is not the case, for whom you are in a very difficult season like we were in back then. Maybe it's not fertility. I don't know what your issue is. But maybe you're in a very difficult season. And right now you can't imagine ever being right again. You can't imagine ever experiencing hope and joy again. You're not alone. This room, this church, this community is full of people with different stories from different seasons of their lives. People that could speak to the faithfulness of God even when we aren't experiencing that faithfulness in our season. Even when we can't see it. Even when God is silent, they could speak to their experience of it. And scripture is full of these stories, right? Stories that help us understand these seasons of feeling we're out in the wilderness. Stories that help us understand who God is. So many of the Old Testament stories have some really great elements of longing and waiting and trying to figure out where God was in the midst of our real everyday lives of deep, unfulfilled longing. Stories like the story of Hannah that you find in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of, son of, son of. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. It's a simple sentence. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. But there's so much more than those simple words. If you go on in the story, Penina would actually taunt this would taunt this other wife. Year after year was the same. Penina would haunt, would taunt Hannah as they were at the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? This guy wins no awards for marital counsel. That would never work. Hannah desperately tries out cries out to God. To bear a child is her greatest longing. And her inability to bear a child is her greatest shame. The story says that when they returned home and Hannah was with her husband, God remembered her plea. That he granted her prayer. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that God knows our deepest longings. He cares about our deepest longings. There's a place to write that down. And God provides. Chapter ends with Hannah conceiving and having a healthy boy whom she named Samuel. Happy ending, right? Sort of. 
I mean, then if you continue the story, Hannah gives her child her most precious blessing back to God and to serve in the temple for the rest of his life. So the story, the chapter one ends. I asked the Lord to give me this boy and he granted me my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord for his whole life. And they worship the Lord there. Last week, Dan talked about deferred hope. This is a story of deferred hope or of no hope and then deferred hope and then realized hope. And it's sort of deferred hope again. And yet in the midst of it, Hannah rejoices. Read First Samuel 2. It's a song of rejoicing that she declares, that she prays, that she speaks after she's left her son, her most precious child, to serve. Read it. It's worth the read. The Christmas story, as told in Luke, starts with a story of great longing and disappointment and shame. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, uh, to the book of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 1. This is all the way back to the beginning of the story. If you don't have a Bible at home, there's a great Bible app on Bible.com that we'd love to have you use. Starting in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. So, start stopping there. The author wants us to know some critical things about this couple he's introducing us to. Right? These are the things that, this is all about graphical information we have. First, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both for priestly lines. Zechariah was already a priest from a priestly line, and he married a woman who was also from a priestly line. That's like double credit priestly. <laughs> That's super duper priestly, right? And they had dedicated their lives to serving God. It literally says they were righteous in God's eyes, not just the people's eyes, righteous in God's eyes. And they were careful to obey all of God's commandments and regulations. These are really good, godly people. Next verse. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they are both very old. It's important to understand that, that beyond just kind of maternal instinct, a desire to have children, there's so much more to that statement. Elizabeth was unable to conceive. It was a different time. And in that time and in that place, the primary, a primary, maybe the primary role of women was to bear offspring, to bear a son so that the husband's name would be continued. And she failed. More than that, she was a failure. Culturally, they had a name for this. They called it barrenness. The, the word barren, you think of a desert, you think of a wasteland. Not a woman. Barrenness, this inability to have children was considered a great shame, a sign that perhaps God was not pleased with you, perhaps that there was some secret sin. A great shame. But beyond that, just practically, if you didn't have children to take care of you when you were old, then who would take care of you when you're old? It was just very, very practical. Who would care for them in their old age? And the author introduces them and says, this couple is already very, very old. (laughs) It's already bad and there's no hope. This is a couple of a picture who weren't able to conceive and now being beyond childbearing years had no hope, no chance of ever bearing a child, of ever having someone to take care of them, of ever having a legacy. And now old had already arrived. This is a, a story of hope not realized, never realized, not deferred. It's absent. And without hope, it's difficult to experience joy. Let's continue the story. 
One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week, and as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Now again, it's important to understand this is a very different place. It's a very different time. This is a very different experience of church and priesthood and so forth. This isn't one day Zachariah was at church doing his priest stuff. <laughs> like my kids understand, you know, dad's at the office doing pastor stuff. This is very, very different. This is a much bigger moment than that. There are 24 different priestly orders, priestly divisions. And there were many, 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 many priests. So many, in fact, that many of them never got to experience this honor of being able to go in and light the incense. And so they used a system that was essentially like casting dice, rolling the dice to determine God's will on which priest would get chosen to do this. Can you imagine that in a sermon today? <laughs> Pray about it, roll some dice, <laughs> and that's God's answer. But many priests never got to do this in their whole life. One commentator said that this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zachariah. He said this is probably the holiest moment in Zachariah's life up until this point. It's a big moment. And then it gets even bigger. Next verse. While Zachariah was in the sanctuary, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zachariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So a couple of things that we can take away from this. First, angels appearing out of nowhere, always scary. <laughs> always super-duper scary. But maybe more practically, the angel says, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. So God knows our deepest longings, there's a place to write this down in your notes. God hears our prayers. Now, we don't know exactly what Zachariah's prayer life was like, but, but we're told that he tried very, very hard, that he worked very hard to be righteous, that he pursued God. We don't know what he prayed for, but apparently God did, and apparently God was still praying, still asking, still longing for a child. In a story that often highlights Zachariah's lack of faith, I think that this, this could be evidence that he was still leaning in, still praying, still hoping, still asking. And to that, the angel says, God has heard your prayer, and your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son. You should name him John. And what does the next verse say? It says, you will have, or what does it say next? You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You will have joy. There is hope, so there can be joy. There will be joy. And I think one of the things we can take away from this, and I think it's a critical point, is sometimes joy is anticipatory joy. It's a not yet joy, but it's a joy of, of looking forward to something. In last week's podcast, we talked about the joy of Thanksgiving morning, where you haven't had the feast yet, but you're making conscious decisions not to wreck your appetite because you are anticipating the joy of that feast. It's an anticipatory joy. This angel is saying, joy is coming, and by the way, a whole bunch of other people are going to rejoice with you. And then the angel goes on to describe what God is going to do to use this child, this son that he was given. He says, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. What a message. What a stark contrast to, to the response that Simeon gives. You know, and, and a sword will pierce your, a will pierce your very heart, you know. This child that God is going to miraculously give you, it's not just any child. He's going to be the central figure, a central figure in the story of God setting all of creation back to right. He's going to be a central character in introducing the world to Jesus, the savior of the world. That's a big, big deal. Next verse. How does Zachariah respond? Zachariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now and my wife is also well along in years. So in this incredibly holy place, this once in a lifetime opportunity in the holiest moment of his life, an angel suddenly appears out of nowhere. And how does he respond? But how? How can I be sure? Again, it's easy to be critical of him in that situation. That's often where this goes. But if you step back from the story of how familiar the story is, if you step back and you put yourself in Zachariah's shoes, I mean, he's in his 70s, maybe his 80s. He knows how human reproduction works. <laughs> he knows that this is biologically not possible. And at the same time, he's a priest. He knows the stories. He knows the story of Abraham and Sarah, of the miraculous child of Hannah and the miraculous pregnancy. And so many other places in the Old Testament where pregnancy is given as a miraculous gift, a sign of God. And in that moment, he says, but how can I be sure? And at least to my reading, that it seems like a fair question. Perhaps this, this resounding disbelief that he has isn't so much like a disbelief in God. He's dedicated himself. It says he's righteous. He's pursuing God. He goes to temple. He does all, all different things. Perhaps this resounding disbelief is the voice in his head that says, it's never going to be. It never has been and it never will be. That's not possible. Don't get your hopes up. When you've been in a season of longing, a season of waiting, a season of crying out to God and feeling like God is silent, it is so much harder to believe. It is so much harder to hold on to hope than it is to go bitter and hopeless. And without hope, it's difficult to experience joy. Apparently, even when it appears before you supernaturally in the holiest moment of your life as an angel, <laughs> it's still hard. Last week, Dan talked a whole lot about the Chicago Cubs and how they spent centuries and centuries without a championship. At some point, the fans just stop believing it's ever going to happen, right? I mean, maybe that's where Zachariah is at in this moment after decades of hope deferred. His heart is sick and he can't believe in this moment that there's really hope. So how does the angel respond? Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and able to speak until this child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. It's a familiar passage. And historically, this passage is seen as a rebuke of Zechariah. That this punishment, or that the silence is, is seen as a punishment for his lack of faith. And, and I'm, I think there's, there's some truth in that, absolutely. I'm reluctant to go against history, you know, <laughs> the historical interpretation. And yet... I want to look at it. I think it's helpful to understand that in this time, in that place, it was not uncommon for people to ask for divine signs, to ask for evidence that God was at work. Remember, this story starts with them rolling dice to determine God's will, to determine the sign. 
Perhaps while this is maybe a rebuke, it's also a gift. It's also a sign from Gabriel saying, if my coming down to you from the literal throne room of God isn't sign enough, I'll give you another sign. In that sense, this season of silence is a gift. It's a grace. This isn't some you know pernicious genie who zaps him because he responded wrong. right? This is the angel of the Lord. Perhaps this is God saying, be still. Know that I'm God. I will do what I say I will do. Rest in that. There's a song that we introduced in our last series called You've Already Won. And in it, there's a lyric. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. In these seasons where we don't know what God is doing, we have the gift of being able to look at what he's done and what he promises to do. And that is the best indicator of his future behavior. So what did God do? Next verse. When Zachariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. So quick note there. That's remarkable. (laughs) He has this incredible supernatural experience. He gets zapped. He's now silent. And he finishes his work week. (laughs) I think that that is worth a sick day or two. But he doesn't. Next verse. Soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. They went into seclusion for five months. You see some of the parallels with the Hannah story. They returned from worship. They returned from the temple. They were together, and soon afterwards, they were pregnant. Against all odds, against all science and biological possibility. But then the next bit is odd, right? She became pregnant, and it went into seclusion for five months. Why does the author give us that interesting detail, but then not tell us anything else about why she did that? That was not customary at the time. Perhaps like after the baby was born, you had some time of seclusion. This was not customary at the time and in that place. The text doesn't tell us much, and, and, and commentaries basically acknowledge that we can only conjecture why this detail is included. And we want to be careful with conjecture. We can't preach what Scripture doesn't say. I think in this moment, we can acknowledge that this is life interrupted, like we talked about week one. Even if it's a good interruption, it is life disrupted. We can imagine perhaps some of her thoughts, joy, yes, but also, yeah, God, we wanted children, but this timing... With how old I am, with how old my husband is, I can't even imagine starting now raising kids. And Zachariah is mute. I can imagine in this moment she's saying, what if I lose this pregnancy? The shame of a miracle that's, that's gone bad. We, we don't know, and that is conjecture on my part. But there's some reason why that detail is given. I think it's safe to say that their life was disrupted. At that point. And there's hope deferred. There's hope given and joy experienced. And yet there's still nine months in that pregnancy. Nine months of is the baby still moving. Nine months of wondering if something's going to go wrong. That is hope deferred. And at the very next verse says her reaction is joy. Even in that season of the unknown. Verse 25. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He's taken away my disgrace of having no children. In the face of the unknown, in the face of disruption, in the face of hope deferred, she points to two things. Who God is, look how kind he is, and what he's done. He has removed this disgrace from me. And because she had hope, because she believed that God would do what he said he would do, she was able to have joy. But there's more to the statement. One of the themes in this story, in Hannah's story, in all of the Christmas stories, is this. God is a shame remover. God 
is a disgrace undoer. Hebrews 12 says this of Jesus. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Because of the anticipatory joy that Jesus had trusting and hoping that he knew what the Father was going to accomplish in this, he was able to endure even the cross, disregard even its shame. Hannah and Elizabeth did nothing to deserve shame. The shame that they felt, the shame that culture put on them. Mary did nothing to deserve the shame that she no doubt faced from friends, from family, from the whole community. But in each case, in these stories, the women report after encountering an angel, after encountering Jesus, that God removed their shame. But what about us? i got to be honest with you. I've done stuff that deserves some shame. <laughs> I've earned some of my shame. <laughs> Maybe you can relate to that. Is, is there hope in this story for me? One who isn't necessarily righteous, who doesn't necessarily always try to work hard to obey all of the commandments. Is there hope in the story for you? Yes. I think in all of these stories, God's response to their shame isn't ultimately about who they are at all. Or what they've done, it's about who he is. They bring their shame, their longing, their brokenness, their greatest desires to God, and he removes their shame. And he can do the same for me. He can do the same for you. Back to the story. And it's important to point out that we're kind of telling the story out of order. <laughs> right? In Luke's account, it's after all of this that the angel appears to Mary. It's after Zechariah and Elizabeth and silence and all that stuff that Mary is visited by an angel, that Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit. It's after this that Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. To avoid emails, I know the silence was still in place. It's not after the silence. I misspoke there. That'll come later. Anyway, <laughs> I want to go back to a passage that we did, looked at at week one. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who's now apparently back from her five-month seclusion. It says this, Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother, the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. This is key. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. There's a connection apparently between belief and blessing. Belief that God will do what God says he will do. I'm not saying Zechariah wasn't blessed because he doubted. As the story progresses, you'll see that he is blessed. But that blessing is deferred. Because he wasn't open to it in the moment. He wasn't open to it at first. I think... One of the key takeaways for me in this story and the stories around this is how do we keep our hearts open to hope? Again, in the podcast, Dan said this, when you sit in deferred hope, it's much easier to get bitter than to stay open. I think that's part of what Zachariah and Elizabeth experienced. And it's important to point out, it's in contrast to all the other characters in these stories. As we learned last week, Simeon had waited a lifetime of deferred hope. Hannah had, had bared the weight, had borne the weight of loss and being a widow for decades, waiting for Messiah to come. And yet for both, there's no angel that appears in this holiest of moments. They're not in the Holy of Holies. It, it was just another day at the temple. It was just another baby. But when they encountered Jesus, when they listened to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, 
who this child was, when they were open to believing, to hoping, to joy, they were to experience that joy. Simeon is described this way, as righteous and devout and eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. He was eagerly waiting. The same passage says that Anna talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. She and these others were waiting expectantly for what God was going to do. There's this theme of waiting, yes, throughout all of these stories. Each pregnancy is nine months. <laughs> and yet it's not its not a waiting in doubt. It's rather an eager and expectant waiting to see what God is going to do, to see if God will do what he's going to do. Waiting with an anticipatory joy. And I know that's hard. It's hard for me. Often, when I'm a season that's hard, I'm not waiting expectantly. I'm not waiting eagerly. I go pretty quickly to, but how? (laughs) I know you could make this right, but will you? How can I be sure? And yet, it's in those moments, they're invited not to turn away from hope, but to lean into it, anticipating what God will do, just how good that feast is going to be. As Chris pointed out in week one, the Christmas carol, Joy of the World, wasn't written as a Christmas carol. In fact, I would argue it's not a Christmas carol. It still isn't a Christmas carol. It's a second coming of Christ carol, looking forward to a future joy when Christ returns and his rule and reign is made complete. When there will be no a new heaven and a new earth, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more separation, no more longing. There won't even be hope because we won't need it. Hope will be fulfilled. There will be only joy. Where are you at today? What season are you in? I don't mean Advent. I don't mean Christmas. I mean life season. Maybe you don't love your story right now. Don't stop believing. Maybe this isn't the way you'd write your story, but Jesus can write a better story. Jesus is writing a better story if you're open to it. If you believe that he can and wants to. In week one of the series, we introduced a new song called Wonderful. And I know I'm quoting a lot of lyrics from songs, but I think this song is wonderful. It says this, gathered around the table, so much to be thankful for. It's Christmas. Oh, I've missed this. But through the joy and laughter, you could feel the sadness because this Christmas, everyone's not with us. It's the time of year when happiness and cheer won't be enough to get me through the night. In this season where there's so much pressure that we feel to make this the most wonderful time of the year, I think it's all right. I think it's maybe even imperative that we bring all of ourselves to God. Yes, our joys and our celebrations and our gratitude and all of those things. But also our deepest longings, our most profound hurts, and acknowledge that there isn't enough eggnog and fairy dust to to fix this broken world. The chorus then goes on to say, I need a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, who's strong enough to carry me. Emmanuel, God with us. This wondrous love will never end. Oh, Jesus, can you make this season wonderful? This song echoes the words of Hannah. This is Zachariah and Elizabeth bringing their needs before God and saying, can you make this season, the season that I'm going through right now, Wonderful. Wow. Sorry. Can you bring beauty 
and even joy into this season. God, can you make this season, even this season, wonderful? It's okay to bring that to God, even if we do it imperfectly. The, the lyrics are, Jesus, can you? But how? That's what we see in these stories. I love that as the song progresses, it seems to mature and grow in its understanding of God. It's a belief that God will do what God says he will do. Chorus 2 echoes the words of Chorus 1, and yet there's a new perspective, a new growth, a new relationship with who God is and how God works. It says this, He is our wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, who's strong enough to carry me, Emmanuel, God with us. The wondrous love will never end. Oh, Jesus, you can make this season wonderful. It acknowledges our needs, but then then matches our greatest longings with who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And by the third chorus, it's even more clear that God is and will be exactly who he says. He is exactly who we need him to be. It says he will be our wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, who's strong enough to carry me. Emmanuel, God with us. The wondrous love will never end. Oh, Jesus, you are wonderful. This season, no matter what season you're in, it can be wonderful because Jesus is wonderful. Because Jesus knows and feels your deepest longing. He hears your imperfect prayers. He is with us, Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of it. Our prayer for you, our prayer for me, is that in this season, we would be able to experience the God of Hannah, the God of Elizabeth, the God of Mary, the God of Simeon and Anna, And believe that that God is who he says he is. And will do whatever it is he says he will do. Our hope for you is that you would have a resounding belief in his hope. And experience his resounding joy. If you'd like to say yes to that for the first time. Or maybe for the first time in a long time. We'd love to walk you through that journey. We'd walk alongside of you in that journey. There's a website uh, that we've created called emmanuel.church slash I said yes. And let us know that you've made this commitment, that you've responded to who Jesus is and what he wants to do. And we'd love to walk alongside you in that. Let me pray for us. God, you are kind. You are the remover of shame. You are the God of hope. Help us to have a vision of the future that you have for us so that when we are in a season of pain, we know that you are still good, that your plans are good, that you are working all things together for good. Thank you that you are our wonderful counselor, our prince of peace, who's strong enough to carry us, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that one day that wondrous love That wondrous joy will never end even when hope does. God, for each of us, I pray you would make this season wonderful. In the name of Jesus, for your sake. Amen.